Right. So all of you have probably heard the phrase, the writing is on the wall. Amen. Somebody said amen to that already, man. This is going to be a good day. <laughs> it's a phrase that we use when we know the outcome of a given situation. Uh, your team may be getting blown out by halftime, so you shut the game off or you leave the stadium early because the writing is on the wall. You're, they're not going to recover from this. That game is already over. We use this phrase when we know that ours or somebody else's fate is sealed. Super common. We use it all the time. But did you know that this phrase actually comes from Scripture? This phrase originates in Daniel 5. And in Daniel 5, we are reminded about the absolute certainty of God's Word. And we're reminded of how we ought to respond to God's Word and work. Daniel 5 depicts the final night of the Babylonian Empire. We see the downfall of this empire itself, but also of its final king, a man named Belshazzar. <clears throat> now, for decades, we had no historical record of King Belshazzar. All of the historical records we had said that the final Babylonian king was a man named Nabonidus. Uh, the only the only document we had that proved Belshazzar was Daniel chapter 5. And so for a long time, critics of God's word said, this is proof that, that Daniel is not credible, that the Bible is not historically accurate. And this was a prevailing opinion for a long time among scholars. But then in 1854, an archaeologist made a remarkable discovery. He found a series of Babylonian documents that not only confirmed the existence of King Belshazzar, but they showed that Belshazzar reigned as co-regent with his father, Nabonidus. And Belshazzar was also, most likely, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. So Nabonidus was actually the final king of Babylon, but he was removed from Babylon for much of his reign. For over 10 years, he was not present in the city of Babylon. And that left his son, Belshazzar, reigning as co-regent, functionally serving as the final king of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar is out of the picture at this point. Daniel is around 80 years old. We've jumped another 30 years from the end of chapter 4. And we have a man named Belshazzar who is sitting on the throne. So let's begin. We're going to start reading in chapter 5. And as we do, we're going to work through this text a little bit different than I've been doing in the past weeks. Normally we have a few points and then I have a big idea at the end. We're going to walk through this whole text, and then at the end, we're going to revisit some of the principles that we can take away from this text. So let's begin reading in verses 1 through 4. Daniel 5, verses 1 through 4. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So Daniel 5 opens, and we find King Belshazzar throwing this, this extravagant feast for a thousand of his lords, of his noble servants. 
And it says that he drank wine in front of them. And that's important because usually at a feast like this, the king would not be in front of all of his subjects. He would be hidden away from them, sort of like a VIP section. Like you had to be this special to actually dine with the king. And so he'd be secluded away and he would drink with those people and the rest of the guests would be in another room. But this night, the king is, is dining in front of his guests and he's drinking wine in front of them. And he's doing this because he wants to encourage their drinking. He wants this to be a crazy party. And the presence of the concubines there, they, that implies that there's other forms of debauchery going, around, going on at this feast as well. The king's concubines were invited for the pleasure of his guests. So this is not a casual dinner. The king is throwing a wild, wild party. And after the king has had a little bit too much to drink, he orders his servants to bring the gold and silver vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. And he orders them to be brought into the party so they could use them to drink wine and get drunk and to praise and worship their own gods. Back in chapter one, uh, we saw that God gave the, the king of Judah into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And along with the king of Judah, he gave him the vessels from the temple. Nebuchadnezzar took those and he put those in the treasury of his own God. Now these vessels, these were a big deal. These were set apart only for use within the temple. They were set apart as holy and there was very strict guidelines for misusing these. The people of Israel would be killed if they misused these temple vessels. So this is a really, really big deal. But, but Belshazzar brings them in to his idolatrous, debauchery-filled party and uses them to worship his false gods. It doesn't get more sacrilegious than this. In doing this, Belshazzar is essentially claiming that Yahweh either does not exist or that he is powerless to stop what is going on. Even by pagan standards, though, this is, this is extremely sacrilegious. Like, the pagans would not do something like this. When you took vessels from another nation's gods, that was considered the property of your own gods. And so to use them in this way was extremely inappropriate. Whatever way you slice this, it, this is an egregious act of blasphemy and sacrilege. Now, I want to put this party in context, though. As I told you, this is the final night of the Babylonian Empire. This is the night that, that Babylon's dominion crumbles and comes to an end. But an empire like this does not fall overnight. The Medes and the Persians, they've been campaigning for some time now. They have been traipsing through the Babylonian Empire, destroying their soldiers, taking over cities, and they have finally made their way to the city of Babylon. And they are knocking on the front door. There are Medes and Persians camped outside the walls of Babylon on this very night. So why on earth is the king throwing a party like this and not trying to fix whatever's going on out here outside of the city? We can't know for sure. We don't know his, his uh, reasoning, but we can make some guesses. It, it may have been the king was convinced they were all going to die anyways, so... Might as well have a good time. We had a good run, guys, so let's do what we can tonight. Some scholars have suggested that it was a, just a seasonal feast, that this was just a planned thing, and the Persians happened to take advantage of it. I think it's more likely that this feast is a result of the king's pride. The king believed he was untouchable. He's in his fortress 
of a city. He's in his palace. Nobody can make it into the palace of Babylon. And so he has this wild party. He desecrates the temple vessels because he wants to boost morale, to show his servants, hey, don't worry about it. I'm in control. I am in charge. Our gods will protect us. We've conquered everybody. No one is getting in to our walls. King could not have been more incorrect. His pride in his own strength, in his own gods, led him to believe that he could just indulge in sinful pleasure. Meanwhile, all of this was brewing outside. No concern for what was coming next. Is this not a picture of how so much of our world lives today? Pridefully insisting either that, that nothing comes after this life, or maybe they just don't care what comes next. And so we live for the moment. We live life for this life, for the sole purpose of pleasure and personal gain. Even many Christians do this. We live as if Jesus' coming is not imminent. We get distracted and lulled to sleep by the pleasures of the world, not concerned with what is coming after this life. But we will give an account when Christ returns. And I don't know about you, but I want to be found ready and waiting when Christ comes, not distracted by simply enjoying the finer things of this life. We ought not live as if this life is all there is. Because as King Belshazzar would soon find out, the judgment of God may come much, much quicker than you would think. Let's keep reading. We're going to read verses 5 through 16 now. <clears throat> Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words the king and his lords, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah? whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can, read the writing and make known to me its interpretation. You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. 
So as this party ensues, you've got the king and his lords and his concubines. They are drinking wine from these vessels. They are praising their idols. And suddenly, out of nowhere, a disembodied hand appears floating in the air and begins to write on the wall of the palace. I want you guys to try and imagine what this king felt in that moment. It's bad enough that he sees a floating hand appear out of nowhere, but this floating hand shows up immediately after you defiled the holy vessels of Yahweh. This is a scary moment. Have you guys ever had a, a moment where you made a mistake and then the moment you realize it, you kind of get that sinking feeling in your stomach and you're just terrified of what's gonna come next? At our previous church, I was recording a video to explain our, our COVID protocol. And this involved me starting in the parking lot and, and walking through the building so that we could show everyone what it would look like when they finally came back to church after a long break. And I was trying to get through it quickly because Lauren and I, we, were, we had plans to go to Grand Rapids that weekend. So I was running through this video. I got done, packed my stuff up, and I got out of there so I could get home and get all packed up. The next morning, I was on my way to Grand Rapids, and I got a call from Pastor Brian. And he told me somebody had broken in and stolen all the laptops, the sound stuff, anything of value had been completely stripped out of the building, like $10,000 worth of stuff. And I'm like, oh man, that's crazy. Like, how does that even happen? And the next thing he says is, yeah, the back door was left open. Soon as he said that, I started thinking, I went through the building this way. I never went back to check on the door that I had propped open. And so Brian says, hey, did you leave that door open? And I'm just like, no. <laughs> yeah, I didn't say no, but I'm like, oh my goodness. I was like, yeah, that was me. Like, I don't know what to say. Like, I'm so sorry. And he's, he's really selling it to me. And he's just like, oh, well, I mean, this is a big deal, Gary. Like, this is, this is going to cost the church a lot of money. And he's like, I guess, I guess just enjoy your trip and we'll have to figure out what we're going to do about this whole situation when you get back. And I am literally about to start crying. I have tears in my eyes. You can ask Lauren. And I'm just like, okay, I guess. Like, I'll see you Sunday. And then it goes silent for a minute. So I'm like, do I hang up? Like, well, I'm the one in trouble here. And then I just hear an eruption of laughter from the phone. And all of the people in the office were playing a huge joke on me. And I did, I did leave the, uh, the door open, uh, but nobody came in and stole anything. There was a cat that got in and it scared Pastor Aaron, but that was the worst of it. <laughs> but in that moment when he said, hey, did you leave the door open? I just, everything just left. I was like, oh my goodness, I have really made a mistake here. As I was reading this, that's how I imagine the king feels as he's desecrating Yahweh's vessels and then a hand appears and starts writing on the wall. He's terrified. He, it says that he goes pale as Casper, his limbs give way, his knees knock together and he starts crying and screaming for his wise men. And that phrase that, that his limbs gave way, uh, it literally means that the knots of his hips loosened. That's probably a euphemism for the loss of control over his bodily functions. Now, whether he actually soiled himself or Daniel's just poking fun at him isn't really the point. The point is, he's blubbering like a baby. He is terrified, shaking in his boots. And I think Daniel is intentionally drawing a comparison here for us between Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. Look at the way that they handle crises. 
crises. I don't know how to say that. When Nebuchadnezzar was terrified by his dream, he didn't cry for his wise men. He ordered them to come before him. He offered them a reward, but he firmly offered judgment if they failed as well. Nebuchadnezzar kept his composure. He maintained his kingly demeanor, but Belshazzar acts like a crying child. And I think Daniel's pressing this comparison because it helps us to understand the source of the king's pride. His desire is to be greater than his grandfather. All of the kings that came after Nebuchadnezzar, they were nothing. They were short-lived. They didn't really accomplish anything. They did not enjoy the success of Nebuchadnezzar. He reigned for 42 years, and the Babylonian Empire only lasted another 25. There's a reason. None of you know who evil Merodach or Labashi Marduk are. If you are, if you do, points for you. But most of you probably don't because they didn't do anything. And that's what this young king is wanting to do. He's wanting to get out of his grandfather's shadow. He's got a little bit of an inferiority complex or little man syndrome going on here. And that becomes clearer as we go. But the most crucial difference between these two is that Nebuchadnezzar would eventually humble himself before the Lord, and Belshazzar would not. And it's the king's refusal to humble himself that leads to the appearance of this hand. This king doesn't realize it yet, but his reign, his life, the kingdom, the writing is on the wall. His fate has already been sealed. Despite being offered this incredible privilege of being the third highest ruler in the kingdom, Babylonian wise men fail yet again. The wisest men on the planet are among the most foolish because they cannot understand the revelation of God. And you should be noticing a trend here that we've seen in every single chapter. The wisdom of man fails. These wise men have every single chance and they fail every single time. God's wisdom is greater than our own. But the fear and the screaming of, of the king and this, this big commotion, it drew the attention of the queen. And depending on what translation you're using, that might say queen mother. And I think that's probably a better translation because this is not the wife of King Belshazzar. This is either his, his own mother or his grandmother. And we know this because we've already been told the king's wives are here at the party with him. And this woman demonstrates a very clear knowledge of Nebuchadnezzar and how he was as king. So that points to the fact that she probably was a little bit older and, and saw a lot of it better than the king himself had. And she tells him that in the days of your father, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel was found to be wiser than anybody else in the entire kingdom. He was found to be able to successfully interpret and solve the greatest problems for Nebuchadnezzar. And five times in a single verse, the queen is mentioning Nebuchadnezzar. She says, your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, the king. I think she's doing the same thing. She's pressing on his inferiority here. She's pressing on this relationship between the two of them. It's like she's saying, hey, dummy, the real king, King Nebuchadnezzar, the one who built this kingdom, he relied on Daniel. Maybe you should go check with Daniel. He can interpret this for you. Now, some have suggested that maybe the king just didn't know about Daniel. He was a mystery to him. He hadn't met him before. But we know that this isn't true because in chapter 8, Daniel is actually serving King Belshazzar. Daniel 8 happens prior to this chapter. But we see that at that point, Daniel is still in the service of the king. So he wasn't unaware. It was simply his own pride. He didn't want to depend on his grandfather's right-hand man. He wanted to show himself better and greater than his grandfather. So he rejected an incredible asset 
simply because of his own pride. But eventually, he does as the, king, the, the queen suggests, and he concedes and he calls for Daniel. The king calls for Daniel, makes him the exact same offer they did to the wise men. And then Daniel's response is really the focal point of this whole chapter. So let's read uh, the first part of his response in verses 17 through 23. <clears throat> then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your awards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys and he was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart though you knew all of this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored." So hopefully you notice that in that first section, Daniel hasn't offered an interpretation yet. The king is getting a little bit more than he bargained for with Daniel. Because Daniel will provide the interpretation in just a moment. But before he explains the king's fate and what was written on the wall, the king needs to understand why that fate has fallen on him. And so Daniel, at first, he refuses the king's gifts. We don't really know why he did that. Maybe that he had no desire to serve such a blasphemous king. Um, it may be that he didn't want any impression that, that the Lord's wisdom could be purchased or bribed, that he shares this wisdom not at the command of the king, but at the command of the Lord. Again, though, Daniel stresses the relationship between the two kings, and he's placing a great emphasis here on the, the, the power and success and greatness of Nebuchadnezzar. When people think of Babylon and its greatness, we've, we've talked about this already, they think of Nebuchadnezzar. Nobody knows those other guys. And it makes sense because they have contributed nothing except to the decline of Babylon. It was Nebuchadnezzar who enjoyed all this great success. He expanded the kingdom across the known world. He conquered nation after nation and added them to his own kingdom. He was the one who nobody questioned his authority. The rest of the kings, they all died pretty violent deaths. The one dude only lasted one month before he was assassinated. Nobody pulled that on Nebuchadnezzar. They feared Nebuchadnezzar, they, they, they didn't question his authority. But all of Nebuchadnezzar's glory and success and authority was gifted to him by the Most High. But the moment when the, when the king lifted himself up against God, when his spirit was hardened in pride, he was humbled by God. God stripped him of that glory, stripped him of his power, his authority, his throne, even his own mind. Nebuchadnezzar lost everything and lived like an animal until the moment 
that he set his gaze toward heaven and humbled himself underneath the true sovereign of heaven and earth. The greatest king that Babylon had seen, the one who built this empire from the ground up, he came to humble himself before God. He came to recognize that his success was not chiefly his own, but it was directly the work of God. But Belshazzar, this punk kid who can't get out of his own grandfather's shadow, who's done very little worthy of noting, he's refusing to humble himself. And Daniel's essentially saying, if, if even the great Nebuchadnezzar could humble himself, who are you? Who are you to think that you can lift yourself up against the Lord? And he doesn't have an excuse. The worst part, it says, is that Daniel says, you knew all of this. You knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar when he refused to humble himself. You saw what God would do, and you still chose to do it. Belshazzar was already old enough to be given an official position for the king, uh, for the first king that succeeded Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar's son succeeded him, and he gave a position to Belshazzar. So he was old enough to see the downfall of Nebuchadnezzar. He witnessed it. He saw his humbling. He saw him come to proclaim faith in God as well. He'd seen God's work. He'd seen the outcome of Nebuchadnezzar's pride. He saw how his grandfather came to humble himself but he wouldn't follow that example. His desire to be greater in and of himself drove him to lift himself up against the Lord in pride. And Daniel ties his, uh, his abuse of the temple vessels directly to his own pride, to his uh, refusal to follow, follow his grandfather's example. Instead of following Nebuchadnezzar's example, Belshazzar insisted on his own pride, on his own greatness. And by taking those, those vessels that, that Nebuchadnezzar had gotten, he, he essentially said, you know, Yahweh can humble Nebuchadnezzar. He will not humble me. And he chose and said to honor gods of stone, metal, and wood, the things that he loved. Gods who could not hear or know or speak or act. Gods of his own creation. And, and that description of the gods of, of all these material things who can't see or speak or act, that's common language in the prophetic books. When they're condemning those who foolishly worship idols, they, they categorize, they characterize them in this way to highlight the absurdity of idolatry. These idols are blocks of wood, blocks of metal. They, they have no power, nothing in and of themselves that are worthy of worship. Belshazzar had never heard these idols speak, never seen them act, but he had seen God move. He had seen God demonstrate his power, witnessed it firsthand. The God who holds his very life and breath in his hand, he chose to defy and honor. And it's that prideful defiance that led to the fate God wrote on the wall. So now the king knows. He knows why God has sent this message. He knows the purpose of it. And so Daniel now will finally interpret this message for him. Let's look back at the, the text and we'll read the final verses here. Verses 24 through 30. <clears throat> Then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parsin. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peres, 
Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So Daniel explains to the king, this floating hand did indeed come from the very God who you were just blaspheming and, and taunting. And this hand wrote four words, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parsin, numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. As Daniel says, God has numbered the days of this kingdom. He's saying, your reign, O king, has come to an end. It has an expiration date and it is coming very soon. And the repetition of that first word, mene, probably emphasizes the certainty, the finality of this judgment. There's no turning back the clock here. This decision has been made. This fate is coming and you cannot change it. The king has been weighed and measured and found wanting. He's been found wanting in the moral sense. This is a prideful and wicked king. And we've only seen hints of his pride and wickedness in this chapter. Now, most historians believe it was Belshazzar who orchestrated the assassination of the king who reigned before his own father, Nabonidus, clearing the way so that he could eventually take the throne himself. Another document tells us that in a fit of jealousy, he was out on a royal hunt and he killed the son of one of his top officials. And it was actually that official who would uh, aid the Persians and the Medes into getting into the city of Babylon. So in this case, his pride and wickedness directly led to his own fall and judgment. You'll notice that the word is different in verse 25 and verse 28. First, Daniel says the word written on the wall was parsin, and then he uses the word peres in his, uh, his, his uh, interpretation. Now, these are the same word. They're just different forms. The first is the plural form. The second is the singular form of the word. And I think Daniel's choosing to use the singular form in his, in his explanation because it sounds very close to the Aramaic word for Persian. And it was, after all, the Merds, the, not the Merds, the Medes and the Persians who would uh, end the king and topple the great Babylon. Think back to chapters two through four. Every time God showed himself to Nebuchadnezzar, there was some semblance of humility. Not total humility, not repentance, but some recognition of God's power and sovereignty. Throughout Nebuchadnezzar's experience of God, there seems to be a softening of his heart, and eventually it gave way to being totally humbled and repentant. When, when he interpreted the dream, he recognized the wisdom of God. When he saved his servants from the fire, he recognized the power and the sovereignty of God. And then in chapter 4, we see him come to a total realization of who God is. We see nothing of the sort here from Belshazzar. He keeps his promise. He gives Daniel those rewards. But he doesn't express anything positive towards Daniel's God. Doesn't express any kind of remorse for what he has just done to Daniel's God by uh, abusing those temple vessels. So not only is this guy arrogant, but he, he's pretty darn stupid as well. He, he just blasphemed Daniel's God. Daniel's God showed up and cast judgment on him and told him, you are about to die. And he just, okay, business as usual. It just keeps on going like nothing happened. But Daniel's promotion, the king's pride, 
would not last long because it says that very night is the night that Babylon fell. The Medes and the Persians invaded and killed the king, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. Notice he didn't take it. He didn't take the kingdom. Verse 28 says the king, the kingdom was given to the Medes and Persians. And here again, it says that Darius received the kingdom. They played a role in it, certainly, but they are merely receiving what God was giving to them because God is the true sovereign. He gives to the kings whom he will. He sets over the kingdoms of man whomever he wills. <clears throat> what do we learn from a chapter like Daniel 5? There's no really clear commands here or anything like that. So why did the Holy Spirit lead Daniel to record these events? And how do they challenge us today as Christians? As I close, I want to suggest four principles that we can take away that ought to guide the way that we think and act before God. Principle number one, human pride leads to sin and foolishness. Human pride leads to sin and foolishness. Human pride in itself is sinful, but it will give way to greater sin and foolishness. It was the king's desire to show himself greater than his grandfather that led him to profane the vessels of the Lord's temple. It was his pride that led him to distance himself from Daniel, who could have been a great asset to him. It was his own pride that kept him from repenting and humbling himself before God. I mean, think how differently things would have gone for him if he showed even a little bit of humility, if he would have humbled himself and repented, or if he had kept Daniel around to testify to the goodness and wisdom of God. But he didn't. His pride just gave way to greater sin and foolishness. How often do we let our pride do the same to us? So often it's our pride that keeps us locked into and trapped in the sin that we are struggling with. We know what the right thing is. We know the right choice. We know what God has commanded of us, but we don't want to do it because we'd have to swallow our pride. We'd have to acknowledge that, that there is somebody more in control and more fit to be in control than we are. But when we choose to disregard God's word for our own, our own pursuits or pleasure or satisfaction, we're essentially saying to the Lord, hey, thanks, I know better. I know what to do here. I appreciate the advice, but you can sit this one out. Submitting to God's word requires us to acknowledge we don't know better. And we should not be the one calling all the shots. When temptation comes, it's our pride that convinces us to hang around that temptation instead of fleeing it. You know, we think to ourselves, I won't possibly make the same mistake again. I promised God I wouldn't fall into this sin again. So I'm good. I know that I'm strong enough to resist this. And we let it hang over our shoulder. And then eventually we stumble into the same sin. It's our pride that keeps us trapped in our sin because we're so often more concerned with how other people perceive us than we are with confessing our sin and finding somebody to hold us accountable and encourage us in our efforts to be holy as God is holy. So we simply pretend, you know, I'm the perfect Christian. I'm not struggling with any kind of sin. And that's what people see when you come in on Sunday. But inside, that sin is eating away at us, preventing us from truly growing closer to Jesus. That's your own pride. And we could go on and on with example and example about how true this is in our lives. But Belshazzar is a perfect picture of the way that human pride continually leads us into foolishness and sin. 
Learn from his mistakes. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Principle two, knowing God's word must produce submission to God's word. The king didn't have the written word of God. He didn't have the the Bible that we have today, but he had very clear testimony about God from Nebuchadnezzar, likely others as well. He saw the revelation of God firsthand in the way that God worked in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. He also saw the, the floating hand come down and write on his wall. In verse 22, it says that you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. The king had seen enough of God. He knew enough of God to repent and be faithful to him. And that makes his pride an even greater offense because he had received that revelation of God. He knew who God was. He had heard what he had did. He had seen it firsthand. But knowing what God has done, knowing who God is, that is not enough. Knowing who God is 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 useless if it doesn't change and humble us before him. Knowing about God is not the same thing as knowing God. You are not a Christian because you grew up in the church or because your parents brought you to church or because you've been coming to church for 30 years. Your knowledge of God must lead you to humbling yourself before him and, and repenting of your sins and putting your faith in Jesus. Christians, it's not enough for you to know things about God. We are called to be like God, not just to know things about him. You can know Greek and Hebrew, all the big theology words. You can memorize whole books of the Bible. But if those things don't change you, what's the point? You aren't studying to be more like Christ. You are studying not for God's glory. You're studying to feed your own ego. I'm not certain who told me this story. Uh, I, I think it was a professor of mine. It could have been another pastor Not sure, but we're going to go with professor because I think so. Anyways, he told me uh, that he had a seminar when he was in seminary, and it was on the letters of Paul, and they had brought in a guest speaker, and and he said that this was the best explanation of the letter of Galatians he had ever heard. He said this guy, he, he nailed justification by faith, the relationship between church and Israel, all these really big, complex theological issues. He he explained them with such clarity and simplicity, and it was so beneficial for my professor and his understanding of the book of Galatians. And he said that it was so valuable to him. Very few people could articulate the truth of God's word with so much clarity and simplicity. But that speaker didn't believe a single word of it. He understood it. He could articulate it better than you or I could. But what was the point? It was of no value to him because he would not humble himself and submit to God's word. When we approach God's word, it should not be to merely gain new information about God, but it should be to be challenged and transformed so that we can be more and more like our Savior. The king knew much about God, but he refused to submit to God. Our knowledge of God must produce submission to God. Principle number three, we can find salvation in God's hand or receive judgment from God's hand. The king defied the God who held his very life, every one of his breaths in his hand. God is sovereign over all. And he did not only hold the king in his hand, he held every one of his guests that night. He held Daniel in his hand and he holds every one of us in his hand 
as well. We know from historical documents that on the night that Babylon fell, there was indeed a feast just as is described here in Daniel 5. And using those documents, we can kind of fill in the blanks for what happened. While the king was partying, while the, the hand was going on, all writing on the wall, the Medes and the Persians were outside diverting the water that flowed into the city into a separate canal. And this lowered the water level down to thigh height so they could sneak in under the walls and begin their attack. And they made their way through the city to this very party where they killed these thousand guests and the king. Daniel was not killed. You'll see him again next week. Our experience in God's hand will change dramatically based on how we respond to God. All of us are held within God's hand, every single person that has ever lived. But those who refuse to repent and humble themselves will receive judgment from the hand of God, just as the king did. Those who humble themselves, who repent, who trust in the name of Jesus, they will find salvation and security in the hand of God, just as Daniel did. Jesus has offered us an incredible gift of forgiveness and salvation that he purchased with his own blood, that we might not fall under that judgment of God. And through repentance and faith, through that humility, we find salvation and life in the hands of Jesus. And then our final principle, principle number four, God's word is absolutely certain. This whole chapter is a testament to the certainty of God's word. For hundreds of years, people debated and questioned the accuracy of this chapter. But eventually, as God's word always does, it proved to be true. When this hand wrote on the wall, its words were certain and sealed. There was no changing them. They were 100% true. Think back to chapter 2. 50 years prior to this, prior to Daniel 5, Daniel explained to, the, to King Nebuchadnezzar that Babylon would fall and that the kingdom that would follow would be the Medes and the Persians. It was right around that time as well that the prophet Jeremiah, well, elsewhere, was prophesying the exact same thing. And here in chapter 5, we see God's word coming to fruition. God's word is absolutely certain. There's no part of the book of Daniel or any other part of the Bible that should leave us in doubt because God has time and time and time again shown that all of history is held in the palm of his hand. And he is moving it and guiding it to accomplish his perfect will and plan. The truths that we see here regarding Daniel and Belshazzar, that they are true for all people, even today. The writing is on the wall for every one of us. Each of us have been measured and found wanting, found lacking because we have fallen short of God's glory and righteous standard. Will you persist in your sinfulness just as the king did? Or will you humble yourself? Let me tell you right now, if Nebuchadnezzar, if his pride couldn't stand before God, if his accomplishments couldn't stand before God, yours ain't gonna hold up. I promise you that. God has already declared the fate of all people. The writing is on the wall. And while the certainty of God's word can be a dreadful thing for the prideful, at the same time, it's an incredible source of hope to those who would repent and believe. Those who humble themselves before him will find eternal life in Jesus Christ. And those who persist in pride will receive the judgment they are due. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
we praise you for the book of Daniel, for this chapter specifically that reminds us of how true your word is. Lord, it is incredible to see things prophesied and predicted so far in advance finally come to fruition. Lord, I pray that anyone in here who has not humbled themselves before you, who are living pridefully, who think that they can coast through this life without considering what comes next, Lord, I pray that your spirit would convict them. I pray that they would not make the mistakes of King Belshazzar, but like King Nebuchadnezzar, they would humble themselves before you. They would put their faith and their trust in Jesus and embrace the salvation that you have freely offered. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.